This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We're going to start with a watershed week in politics, and I'm not talking about the recent midterms. It was a week when the line between news and entertainment blurred for good, and it may shed some light on our current politics. I'm talking about a few key days during the 1988 presidential race. A Democratic U.S. Senator from Colorado, Gary Hart, was the one to beat. That is, until an alleged affair sunk his campaign. Reporters had confronted him about it. Yeah, you said we, we must hold I, ourselves accountable what I said. to the highest possible standards of integrity what? and ethics. Then why are we standing here? Why are we standing in an alley on a Saturday night? I mean, did you think you owe it to us to be forthcoming? Oh, you. You're denying what we've seen with our own eyes. The only eyes. thing I deny is the idea that somehow you have the right to ask me these things. You're running for president. I'm aware of that, Tom. It's in the papers. Well, you have a responsibility. I know full well what my responsibilities are. Do you know yours? That's from the new film, The Front Runner, about those crucial days. It's directed by Jason Reitman, best known for Juno and Thank You for Smoking. He joins us with two of the writers, Matt Bai and Jay Carson. Red Rocks makes an appearance early in the film. Senator Hart, his campaign staff, and a gaggle of reporters have hiked up there, some of them breathless. Here's Matt Bai. Red Rocks is where he decided to announce his campaign for president in 1987. It was a highly controversial decision among Gary Hart's staff because normally people do that in ballrooms or very theatrical settings with like, you know, streamers and that kind of thing. And he wanted to climb up this mountain and stand on a rock by himself. I mean, we we went over to Red Rocks just when we were getting ready to do the movie and we were winded (laughs) just climbing up and down. It's tough. And uh, there was a message in it. There was a message about the West uh, and the importance of bringing the West into the mainstream of American politics and democratic politics. And there was a, a message in his hardiness and fortitude and perhaps in the lack thereof of the journalists who were going to have to climb up that hill. Why don't we hear a little bit of the actual Senator Hart's remarks as he declares for president at Red Rocks. I intend to be a candidate for the presidency of the United States in 1988. And I do so for one single reason. And that is because I love my country. America is not an abstraction. It's 250 million human beings united by common geography and history and heritage. America is probably best represented to me by our children, Andrea and John, and and their generation, for they are the hope of the future. You know, I'm young enough that I really wasn't aware of this at the time. I had heard the names, Gary Hart and Donna Rice, but uh, it wasn't until I read Matt's book. All the Truth is Out. All the Truth is Out. It's now called The Front Runner. It's been renamed Mm -hmm. after Um, the movie. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Uh, But the movie started playing in my head. And when the three of us got together to start writing this, it became a question of, you know, not what the story is. We know what the story is. You know, it's a true life story and that's already been played out. But it becomes how you tell it. And we knew that we wanted to come at it with this style that, you know, we attribute to filmmakers like Robert Altman and Michael Ritchie with this kind of overlapping dialogue and this kind of frenzy, this frenzy that, you know, Jay taught me about as far as kind of what it feels like to actually be on a campaign. And in looking for those opportunities, this hike up to Red Rocks all of a sudden seemed like the perfect cinematic opportunity. You have these people climbing up a mountain and you have this large shot where it's just as wide as humanly possible and you're hearing all this dialogue and you don't even know which person is speaking because they're just kind of ants walking up a hill and it kind of speaks to the character identity of the movie that you can't even attribute who was talking to kind of which little silhouette on the horizon. Jay, you were a political operative. This is a world that you lived and breathed. Talk to me about 
all of the dialogue that happens sort of simultaneously and the fact that throughout the film, you're just getting a range of perspective. It's not one person's movie. It's not Hugh Jackman's movie. No. Like It's Lee, Senator Hart's wife, who's played by Vera Farmiga. It's the people on the campaign. It's the reporters. All of these different perspectives. We really wanted this to feel real. We really wanted it to feel like a campaign and to capture the, both the excitement and the humor of a campaign. You know, on a presidential campaign, there's so much happening. You're basically packing two days of work into every single day. And that creates a peripatetic movement inside the campaign that you don't sit and hold on one thing for a long period because 50 things are happening at the same time. And so we tried to capture that in every scene. And Jason, you know, really gave us the freedom to do this. This was really his leadership was we don't need to have one single main character. We can follow 20 different people and we can lock in on their perspectives at various times during the movie. I'll say that you've contributed to House of Cards. So that's probably a high bar to hit. You know, we had a rule in House of Cards where, you know, we pushed reality a lot, but we would always find something we could hang it on where we're like, okay, well, this could have happened. But in this movie, we had a very different rule, which was we wanted things that actually did happen or would happen. You know, we needed the days to feel real. And so if you notice, a lot of times in political movies, we hold on the main character who's our hero for a long period and he speaks for four pages. You don't have that in here. And the only time where you inside a campaign where you almost get to that, which is J.K. Simmons giving this speech to the staff at the beginning, the pizza guy walks in and someone has to pay him because that's how a campaign works. No one, <laughs> no one actually gets to hold the stage for that long because food arrives and people need to eat or they need coffee and they need to go to the bathroom. I was looking up the timeline and it's less than a month later from the announcement that Gary Hart is running for president at Red Rocks that the front runner, Gary Hart, withdraws from the race. I mean, for those unfamiliar with the story, a Miami Herald reporter got a tip that Hart was having an affair. Until then, there had been this tacit agreement between politicians and the press that affairs weren't really a story. I mean, I think of President Kennedy's many peccadilloes. But the reporter goes after the story. A photo eventually emerged of then 29-year-old model Donna Rice sitting on Hart's lap. They're on a Miami pier where a yacht called Monkey Business is docked. There's a lot that you have to either leave to the imagination of the audience or blanks perhaps to fill in because there are just chapters of this story that no one really knows, I guess unless you are Senator Gary Hart, Matt. Yes, or Donna Rice. You know, the movie you know, isn't going to give you all the – or guess at all the prurient details. So you know, we don't get into what happens on that boat because we don't know and it's not – that important. And it's certainly not important to the story of all these forces that were changing in the moment. The story isn't whether or not there's an affair. The story is why did all these forces collide to bring the cultures of entertainment and the cultures of politics together in that moment. From that moment on, politicians are treated more like we treat celebrities. Uh, they're seen more as personalities. And when you create a, a politics infused with entertainment, you are very likely to get entertainers and performers as your candidates. Jason, how much of making this movie was about trying to understand the current political moment by looking back? Like everybody alive right now, I look around and I wonder how the hell did we get here? Uh, it's a confusing moment, uh, no matter what side you're on. And we're trying to navigate that. I think that's why we read the news as though it's Game of Thrones. And I make movies because I have questions. Give me an example of a question you'd raised and an answer you got. I didn't know until we started this uh, movie that the primary system only goes back to the 70s. I had presumed that the primary system had been around a lot longer than that. Uh, and it was these guys who explained to me that before the mid-70s, 
candidates were chosen by party bosses at conventions. And it was only after that 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 choice was put into the hand of constituents. And, you know, somehow we had to find out who the hell these people were. If you got 12 people running to be your candidate and one's a mayor from one city and one's a congressman from some other far-flung state, uh, the responsibility fell on the shoulders of journalists to inform us who these people are. And, of course, once you want to know that, the next logical question is, well, what do you want to know? And that, that seems to be the thing we're trying to figure out to this day is what, what do, do you want to know, know about the candidate? Yeah. What do you want to yeah. know beyond the – Their stance on gun control. Yeah, exactly. Their ideas, which you can kind of presume what their the stance is on gun control now based on whether they're on one party or another. Everyone is so party aligned uh, that if you're looking for some, some other differentiator – it is now either going to be, does he play the saxophone or has he been a faithful husband? And we're getting into details that really have nothing to do with leading a country. I've worked for candidates for the presidency of the United States. Who, who played did, the who saxophone? Did, who, who did, well, yes, but who didn't know that the primary system started in the mid-70s, so don't worry. Don't feel I've, had candidates, I've had candidates ask me, like, going back to the 60s, who, who won the Iowa caucus? And I was like, yeah, it yeah no one. Why was Hugh Jackman right to play Senator Hart? In my head, it's so obvious. Like in my head, I look at Hugh Jackman and I go, oh my god, this is the perfect guy to play the role. Are you kidding me? Was uh, it about his looks? Was it about his comportment? The cosmetic similarity is obviously helpful, but that doesn't matter as much as the kind of interconnective tissue. Um, I wanted to make sure that in the midst of this scandal, in the midst of the hardest weeks of Gary Hart's life, his inner decency rang through. And that's one of the things I associate with Hugh Jackman, his decency, his kindness, his generosity, who he is as a human being. And in addition to that, I wanted to work with this actor who was known for his immeasurable work ethic. Because this is a guy from Australia who had to not only learn the accent, develop the character, but then on day one had to get into a 10-page debate about – truly random, far-fetched American politics that we're not even talking about anymore. The MX missile. Wow. So you shot like the full debate? Well, yeah. I mean, and that's the thing about this movie. And it's funny because we sit here and we have lots of conversations about the politics of this movie. Uh Uh-huh. And we don't get the opportunity that much to talk about the details of how complicated it was. It is the most complicated movie I've ever made by a mile. It has 20 main characters. Every character has to be completely fleshed out and given a real life. Usually if you have 20 main characters, I mean, first of all, you wouldn't. But even if you did, you would catch up with them every once in a while in a two-person scene. Everyone is on screen all the time, and they all have to have purpose. The background extras needed purpose. So if we're going to have a sequence where we're going between the Washington Post, and we're going to Georgetown, and we're going to the campaign office, and there's just TVs in the background playing this debate. We have to film this debate, Hmm. and it needs to be just as alive. It can't just be random dialogue. So when we swing by the television every time, it has to be something real and important. It's about all the details that you think you're picking up on accidentally, but we're all placed there like little breadcrumbs. I understand that Gary Hart met with Hugh Jackman. Did that happen here in Colorado? And What was the effect on the film? Hugh came out to Colorado and actually stayed with the Hearts uh, for a weekend. I'm guessing at the same ranch, the same property. Same ranch he lived in in 1987. That was just swarmed by the press and the onslaught of those new things called satellite trucks that allowed you to – broadcast an image from Troublesome Gulch outside of Denver 24 hours a day. Yeah, that's exactly right. And look, this is the first time Hugh has played a real-life person who was alive today, someone he knew would then 
see the movie. There is a burden to that. I mean, look, I think all three of us felt the burden of making this movie knowing that the campaign people, the journalists, and and I think for you guys, uh, you know these people. You know these campaign people. You know these journalists uh, who we are portraying and are going to eventually see the film. In this way, I probably have the most relevant experience uh, because as a journalist, of course, you know, you're used to people seeing what you make of them, what you make of their lives. You distill it on a page and you give it to them. I'm always sensitive to it. My understanding is that Gary Hart and Lee Hart watched the film together, I think. Yeah, I mean, Jason showed it to everyone. He can, he can speak to this. He showed it to everyone involved. But I think, you know, he felt about the movie, much as I've always felt about writing, that people have a right to know what you've, how you've depicted them, and, and they should see it before the rest of the world. I, I, I did admire that. Yeah, the first person we showed the film to was Donna Rice. Uh, we showed it to her in Los Angeles. And then it came out to Denver and showed it to the entire campaign team and uh, Hart's kids. Uh, and then the hearts themselves. And look, there's nothing more terrifying <laughs> to be sitting outside this theater as the people inside watch their lives portrayed. And the first night that we showed it to the campaign team, we left the theater and we all went for dinner and drinks here in Denver. And it was really quiet at first. And then one by one, they started to talk about the experience of watching the movie, reliving these kind of moments from that campaign. And then, oddly enough, a few drinks in, they started to get into what the campaign was like the few weeks prior to that, when they had hope, when they really thought they were in the bus with Kennedy uh, and that this guy was going to get elected and he was going to change the country and that they were going to be a part of it. And to watch them reminisce about that moment was really special. You mentioned Donna Rice. I want to say that Donna Rice Hughes now released a statement about the film. She wrote, the front runner." is Senator Hart's story, not mine. The film ends where the trauma in my life began. While I had no involvement with the film, I'm grateful to director Jason Reitman for portraying my character in a sensitive and compassionate light. Is this story too sympathetic to Gary Hart? Some of the critics have said that. There is no heroes or no villains in this movie. Everyone has their own sensitivities. And frankly, that's kind of what makes it, this story so interesting is it seems to reflect the viewer more than anything I've ever made. Yeah. That or, is, you, you see in the reactions of people whatever they're sort of bringing to the film. A hundred percent. And we wrote this movie in 2015. And obviously the world has shifted over the last three years. And people bring baggage to the movie theater. That's part of what makes movies special is you go in with your own human experience and – the screen reflects you, and then you walk out of the movie, and you see the rest of your life through the lens of the film. With this film, with so many main characters portraying so many different sides, whether you're a journalist in the film and even within amongst the journalists, we show so many journalists, each with different points of view, young, old, male, female, veterans in the business versus you know the newbies, whether you're a campaign person, whether you're Donna Rice, whether you're a family member of Hart or Hart himself. There are so many ways through which you can watch this movie. You know, if I could just speak to that for a second, Ron, because from my perspective, you know, and I don't think it's overly sympathetic to Senator Hart, but look, I, I, I've been a journalist. I've been covering national politics for 20 years. Mm-hmm. I still write a column for Yahoo. I've, I've covered five presidential campaigns. My wife's a journalist. My friend's a journalist. I live in Washington. I don't live in LA. So I understand uh, that this is a difficult moment for journalism. And I understand that when you show something from a politician's point of view, when you scrutinize coverage, you're wading into a sensitive area. It's sensitive for me. It's sensitive for everyone I know. But as Jason says, this is a movie that asks everybody to reflect on decisions made in a moment 
decisions I would never say were, were right or wrong because I, I could have made any of them, honestly. It was a very difficult moment with a lot of dilemmas for people. And it, it looks at, at the candidate and at the aides and at the voters and, yes, at the journalists. And it says, let's revisit these decisions because they had consequences. And we as journalists, even in a moment where we feel forced to defend ourselves, can't get to a place where we're unable or unwilling to reflect. It doesn't make anything less of the tremendous contributions we make as journalists to look back at a critical moment and say, where did it lead us? How did the hearts react? When Gary and Lee walked out of the movie, uh, we all went out for hot chocolates. One of the first questions Gary asked was, do I really talk like that? And his wife, Lee, said, yes, darling, that, that's exactly how you speak. <laughs> uh, and from there on, they, they Gary shared his feelings about the movie. And, and look, frankly, he's a private man. He deserves to respond to the movie himself. However, I will say that he thought there was empathy and sensitivity in the film to him as a human being. Uh, and by the way, it is the same reaction of Don Rice and the same reaction as Tom Fiedler, as people who have thought of Fiedler themselves as... Fiedler is the reporter at the Miami yeah, Herald who broke this story. Yeah, as people who feel like they've been participating in a joke for 30 years, I think the film made them feel as though we were treating them as human beings. Was there any part of Gary Hart that was like, Jason, don't do this movie. I just, I don't need more attention around this. Let bygones be bygones. I mean, if that's how we felt, that's not a conversation that we had. Okay. Uh, look, he is a private person. He is very clear about what he thinks is relevant and what is irrelevant. What I'm curious about is about the rest of us. What do we consider relevant? Where does something stop being important and just start being entertaining and uh, it was confusing in 87 and it has only gotten more confusing now. Now you wake up, you open up your news app and there's literally uh, a story about the midterms right next to a story about Ariana Grande and Pete Davidson breaking up and they're from the same source and given equal weight and I find that really confusing. By the way, had Senator Hart said that to Jason, I can tell you Jason's response would have been, I'm sorry you feel that way. I think this is an important story and we're going to make it. We didn't make this movie with Gary Hart. We didn't make this movie for Gary Hart. We made this movie because we thought it was an important story to tell. Could we wrap up with you reflecting on what America might be today if Gary Hart had become president? I mean, I wonder how much thought as you made this movie you gave to the what if. Uh, you know, not as much as you might think. I've always been more interested in the rest of us. I'm not Gary Hart. I'm just another person on the outside curious about where we're at and where we're heading. And we've talked a lot about um, who doesn't run these days. And with the celebrification of politics, what kind of candidates do we drive out of the race, you know? This isn't a story about how Gary Hart or a bunch of people changed American politics as much as it is a story about the moment when American politics and American political journalism – changed uh, long in coming and a bunch of people got caught in that moment and had to make really difficult decisions. So the what if of it never, um, you know, it's fun, but it never interested me as much because I don't think there was an alternative. I don't think there was a way to change the direction of where we were going in terms of uh, entertainment and politics and their confluence and their effect on one another. I think that's where the culture was headed for a whole bunch of reasons. And the truth of our existence, you know, 30 whatever years on is more about uh, who can succeed as a candidate and who can't. Uh, and and who think, even wants to be in politics anymore as a result of all this. Yeah. Gentlemen, thanks for being with us. Thank you, thanks Ryan. That was fun. 
Political journalist Matt Bai co-wrote The Front Runner. It's the new film from director Jason Reitman. We also heard from writer Jay Carson. The movie opens Friday in Denver and nationwide on the 21st. Now let's hear former Colorado Senator Gary Hart in real life when he announced he was ending his presidential campaign. The date is May 8th, 1987. Now, clearly under present circumstances, this campaign cannot go on. I refuse to submit my family and my friends and innocent people and myself to further rumors and gossip. It's simply an intolerable situation. I believe I would have been a successful candidate, and I know I could have been a very good president, particularly for these times. But apparently now we'll never know. I've had the support of some of the most talented people in this country, particularly young people, And I want to say to all of them today, march on. There's a lot of work to do. We're all going to have to seriously question the system for selecting our national leaders that reduces the press of this nation to hunters and presidential candidates to being hunted. Politics in this country, take it from me, is on the verge of becoming another form of athletic competition or sporting match. We all better do something to make this system work We're all going to be soon rephrasing Jefferson to say, I tremble for my country when I think we may, in fact, get the kind of leaders we deserve. Some of former Colorado Senator Gary Hart's remarks as he ended his presidential campaign. It's the subject of the new film, The Front Runner. Special thanks to CBS4 in Denver for help with archival tape. Colorado Matters continues after a break with Devochka on CPR News. Hey, I'm Jesse Witten from Colorado Public Radio's Open Air and one of the hosts of our brand new podcast, The Playlist League. What I love about this is it takes something as beautifully subjective and personal as music and makes it into a battle royale. It's a music conversation, but done competitively as we draft playlists song by song according to a theme each month. So if you like music discovery, bloodthirsty competition, or even just a fun, casual hang session with some fellow music lovers, check out the Playlist League from CPR's Open Air. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. This summer saw the return of Devochka, one of the biggest players on the Colorado music scene. The quartet formed in the late 90s and became famous after composing the score to the indie film Little Miss Sunshine. Devochka is currently on tour in support of its seventh studio album. It's called This Night Falls Forever. Devochka performs this week at the Stanley Hotel in Estes Park before heading out on a European tour. Nick Urata is the lyricist, singer, and multi-instrumentalist for the band. And uh, Nick, nice to see you again. Nice to see you, Ryan. This Night Falls Forever arrives seven years after Devochka's last studio album. But uh, you weren't exactly taking time off. The band worked on side projects, played shows around the world, all while working on this album. How do you manage to balance all of that work. Um, well, it's interesting. It it uh, it didn't seem like that long for us. It seemed like just yesterday. Oh. Um, but uh, it, in hindsight, it was actually 
beneficial in that we we would start working on the album normally we would just do a big sprint and and compose and record an album within a, a short time span but this time because of all of our collaborations and and side projects we uh we were able to not purposely but we put it on the back burner a few times and when we came back to it we realized hey man we could make this better so oh. i think the result was was happily we got to spend more time on it i wonder if that might just be your new way of working now i mean if you think of it as the better outcome yeah why not oh if, but i i don't want to make people wait that long again that was that was inexcusable <laughs> inexcusable did you hear from fans were they upset uh well people yeah people got impatient and and uh yeah and like i said it just it seemed like a couple of months but it was actually a couple of years it was a lot of years your lyrics to these songs often look to the past particularly your teenage years i understand growing up in new york city what is it about that time of your life that inspired this music you know i guess when i look at it i'm I'm always sort of drifting back there when I write songs because uh, when when I sing, I, I sort of I need to find a well of emotions, and I always find that period just uh, you know I, I guess they f- call it your formative years for a reason because uh, I feel like you're the person you become is sort of forged in those fires you go through, and yeah, is it a, a positive? nostalgic experience is it a painful one or a mix i think it's a mix of both i i think like you never forget you know the first time you fall in love is so huge but i was thinking at the same time you're you're sort of you're sort of falling in love with the world it kind of opens you up to to uh to a bigger a bigger uh calling and and i think that's the feeling i I was trying to dwell back to it's interesting because i don't think of the first time i've fell in love I think of the first time I was broken up with <laughs> right I think that's <laughs> maybe where, that's the flip side <laughs> I think that's where it always goes to too if you if you listen to our songs I think we deal with that a lot uh-huh. <laughs> what does the album title mean this night falls forever well it does kind of go back to what we were just saying I was just thinking about those you know those dramatic times in our youth when you don't you don't realize it's happening but then you know one one particular night will change your life and your trajectory of your life. So that's that's where they... This night falls forever. Is that a night you fell in love? Yeah. Oh. Are you still in love with the sound of your voice that floats all around and above all noise And then it grows fingers and scratches my skin And plucks at my heartstrings till I let you in it's all is forgotten and nothing's forgiven I know what you're holding and I know where it's hidden But somewhere back in your memory There's a younger, pretty version of me and that's the message I want to transmit That's the boy I want you to go home with you're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Nick Urata of Devochka, whose latest album has a really giant sound. And that's true of their previous albums. It's just giant-er. Uh, does this person know you've written a song about them? Oh, sure. This person that you first <laughs> fell in love with? Sure. Well, I don't, no, I doubt it. And it's, you know, it's a, it's a smattering of, of experiences. Of the, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to get too specific. 
I understand there are a couple of songs that almost didn't make it onto the album because you lost a notebook filled with your lyrics. Tell us this story. Yeah, so, well, I mean, luckily it has a happy ending, but I did, I I was carrying this little notebook and I had ye- built up years of lyrics and and I'm the type of guy who, who will just write it in the middle of the night or driving in a car or, or just when it comes to you. And, uh, and like an idiot, I didn't back it up or... Uh, printed out but um i left it in a guitar case and and sent the guitar off to get repaired and the the notebook didn't come back and uh oh and it was gone for years and i tried to recover and tried to keep a good attitude about it but i'd never got some of those lyrics back and then a a couple uh a year before uh we were just about to go into the studio and i received a phone call out of the blue from from my friend who who took the guitar case and he found it behind a bookshelf. <laughs> it had been sitting there for for two years. The notebook. Had, yeah, <laughs> I love that you talk about backing up a notebook. <laughs> yeah, kind of mixing the analog and yeah. the digital. There has this changed how you uh, back up, if you will, your your well, ideas. Yeah, I mean that uh, that's what I was getting at. Is is when you get to a certain point, you should you should probably back up your your notebooks. <laughs> no. <laughs> So I just picture you scribbling down lyrics in in kind of random places. Uh, what tends to inspire you? Uh, you know, you never know when inspiration is going to strike. Uh-huh. That's why I do always like to keep a, a handy notebook. I. Um, when was the last time you wrote something down? Uh, that's funny you say that because I, w- I, I woke up at about 5 o'clock this morning and this line came to me and I wrote it down. Will you share it? <laughs> I, I think it's a little too early to share this one. It's premature. Yeah, thank you for for asking. Well, sure. Uh, you've said This Night Falls Forever is more ambitious than Devochka's previous albums. Uh, there are some bigger string arrangements, and you seem to expand the band's sound even further. I want to play my favorite track from the new Devochka album. The song is Empty Vessels. love that line we're just empty vessels for the world to fill the video for this is very cool are you actually underwater for it or is that an effect no i actually was in a in a olympic training pool in in the czech republic underwater and uh yeah. <laughs> fully clothed i think yeah it was it was uh it was a pretty unique experience i laughed i cried i was freezing but we did it the things you do for art. <laughs> what new territory have you charted with this record? What risks did you take, do you think? Um, well, I think uh, 
Well, for one, like we mentioned, we were we were doing all these amazing collaborations, like with the Colorado Symphony, for instance, and uh, and and uh, and I was working with these like world class Hollywood film orchestras, and uh, and it was hard to go back to to the small quartet after that. So we were like, well, let's bring these onto our new album and make it that bigger make sound, it, make it as big as as we can, and I hope that we were we wanted to to give it some vastness, but we wanted to have that intimacy that draws you into a song, and I hope we accomplished that. I think you did. In other words, it's possible to have a huge sound and yet a very intimate presence. Uh, it's so interesting. Yeah, you're one of the bands that has collaborated with the Colorado Symphony, which, suffice it to say, amps up your sound a bit. And I, I do wonder for how many musicians it's tough to go back to the kind of small sound once you go symphony <laughs> man you never it, go back it is it is sometimes tough you're riding that huge wave of all those musicians backing you up you've written scores to a number of films and tv shows uh, little miss sunshine my favorite ruby sparks uh, paddington crazy stupid love and recently the theme to the netflix series a series of unfortunate events starring neil patrick harris uh the sequence is short so what when we should hear the whole thing just look away, look away There's nothing but horror and inconvenience on the way Ask any stable person, should I watch it? They will say, look away, look away, look away Look away, look away, look away, look away Look away, look away is that Neil Patrick Harris singing? Yes. Oh. He did perform it. I think you're a better singer. <laughs> well, we, we, we had to. Uh, the, the funny part of it is if you watch the series, um, the shtick is that Olaf comes up with a really bad disguise every time that people can easily see through. Yes, this is his character. Yeah. The nefarious keeper of kids. Um, but he sings, and in each theme song, we left a space for him to sing in his new character. For, and he tells about what's about to happen in oh, the Oh, it's episode. like this customizable theme. Yeah. How has working on soundtracks influenced your writing for Dvochka? I mean, I, I wonder if the approach is much different. Um, it is different, but it, it, I think the one positive thing is that it forces you to be disciplined about it because it is uh, the hours are long and you you can't uh, mince your your words or your notes when you're when you're working on a soundtrack. And oh, it has a way of paring down what yeah. you bring to the table exactly yeah there's not really much time for for fluff or uh or um yeah um ornamentation Ex exactly maybe yeah it's, thank you it's so cool to me Nick Urata that Devochka for as big as you are is playing these like intimate venues not I mean not just the stadium crowds um well yeah that's that's really where we we thrive and that that's where we that's where we kind of came up, you know. We oh. we came up playing house parties and basements, and, and that's where we feel at home, including the Stanley Hotel. Exactly. Yeah. Thanks for being with us. Nice to see you again. Oh, thanks for having me back. Nick Urata is frontman of Devochka. Their new album is "This Night Falls Forever." The Denver band, as we said, plays the Stanley Hotel in Estes Park Friday and Saturday, and at Denver's Bluebird Theater, December thirtieth and thirty first.
Now in our feedback segment, Loud and Clear, your swift response to a story about marijuana edibles. I spoke yesterday with an investigative journalist working with Rocky Mountain PBS who dug into the case of Richard Kirk. Kirk says pot candy led him to kill his wife. He pled guilty to murder and is serving a 30-year sentence. The reporter we had on the show used the case as a jumping-off point to explore what we do and don't know about pot edibles. Why are you spreading this Twinkie defense, asks Twitter user at Sack2Grapefruit. This case does not raise serious questions about the safety of edibles. It raises serious questions about violent men and the role of mass media in validating them. Listener Randy Floyd, meanwhile, tweets, That's impossible, said anyone who's ever eaten an edible. And Twitter user at Speclight chalks the case up to marriage troubles and a gun. Keep your feedback and story ideas coming. Find all the ways to get in touch at CPR.org slash connect. The FDA is cracking down to keep teens from using tobacco. In a move announced today, the agency says it will limit sales of flavored e-cigarettes to stores that are not accessible to teenagers or to ones that restrict access to these products. The FDA is also working to ban menthol cigarettes and flavored cigars. Colorado, meanwhile, has already taken action. That's because teen use of e-cigarettes is very high here. The vaping trend has even caught on with middle schoolers. CPR health reporter John Daly explains how we got here and what the state is doing. Thank you for calling the Colorado Quit Line. My name is John. How may I help you today? When callers dial 1-800-QUIT-NOW, they can work with a coach over the phone to understand their smoking triggers, manage cravings, and grapple with relapse. The eligibility age to call has been 15. Allison Reedmore with the state health department says now... They'll take calls from kids as young as 12. We really thought that now is the time to make resources available to any youth who do want to quit. The move comes as Colorado scrambles to head off what public health officials worry is a health catastrophe. The CDC says Colorado leads 37 states that surveyed teens on electronic cigarette use. Readmore says more than a quarter of Colorado high school students say they now use a vaping product. That's twice the national average. It's a very troubling trend, and we reduced the age of eligibility, understanding that kids as young as middle school could be using these products, could be concerned about their use of these products, and might want to quit. About 10 percent of Coloradans enrolled in the quit line say they use these cigarettes or vaping products. The program's clinical director, Thomas Ilioya, says jewelry cigarettes have been a game-changer. Ilioya says Juul blitzed its competition by changing its nicotine formulation in vaporizing e-liquid into nicotine salt. They could actually deliver a much higher dose of nicotine without people feeling the really adversive effects like drying out their throat and nasal passages. They could get that higher nicotine without really having what they called the throat hit. But Ilioya says more nicotine creates a higher risk of addiction. The quit line can help adults transition with the nicotine patch, gum, and lozenges. But those medications are not available for kids under 18 who seek treatment. Still, Ilioya believes the coaching, which can be done online as well, will help people as young as 12 quit. We're really concerned about youth using nicotine-containing products. We know that it's damaging to the developing brain. Ilioya says he's unaware of any other state that's lowered its quit line eligibility age to 12.
But with Colorado a leader in teen vaping, he thinks it makes sense. Really, it's, it's an exploding market, and so we really need to do something about it fast. At Chatfield High School in Littleton, teacher Don Daniels lays out a collection of e-cigarettes. Yeah, these are the new devices. They range from the sleek Jewel, which looks like a flash drive, to the Soren, shaped like a credit card. Daniels teaches government and runs the school's tobacco education efforts called the Not Program. Daniels likens the e-cigarette sensation to smoking in the 50s. People did it, but long before there was research to show the consequences. We've got a tip of the iceberg situation where we really have not even yet got to the point where we fully can comprehend what these devices are doing to young people's bodies. Daniels helps students learn about potential health risks and ideally quit the habit. Olivia Riddle, a junior, says she started smoking e-cigarettes at 15 as a freshman. Her parents didn't know. I just met this wrong group of kids who just like kind of just were like, hey, do this. And I'm like, okay. So I guess just trying to fit in and trying to be that word cool, I guess, in high school. Almost 6% of Colorado high school students say they vape frequently. Riddle says this tracks with what she sees at school and her own use. I was probably using it every day. Um, in class, after school, um, probably doing homework was most of it, was just sitting there and, like, frustrated and just, like, I guess worried about, like, a test I had the next day, so just, like, trying to calm myself down. Her school's smoking prevention program helped her understand why she started in the first place. It helped Riddle learn the risks involving brain development, respiratory problems, and addiction. It helped her figure out coping mechanisms when a craving hit. Riddle says she knows many middle schoolers are vaping, so she backs lowering the age to use the quit line. I feel like it's good, but it's it's kind of sad. But now thinking about it, it's, it probably would help a lot of people. The explosion of teen vaping here is prompting reactions. You need to be 21 now to buy tobacco products in four of Colorado's mountain towns. It's a region with high teen vaping rates. Recently, Governor John Hickenlooper announced new Get Tough measures. Youth vaping... You know, the percentage of kids vaping is not a list we want to be at the top of, but we are. And I think it would be foolhardy and and irresponsible if we didn't address this. The governor has proposed raising the minimum age for tobacco sales to 21. He also wants a ban on flavored tobacco and vaping products. Juul Labs, maker of the Juul, dominates the e-cigarette market. Jewel has taken out full-page ads in the Denver Post and other papers around the nation. A headline reads, What Parents Need to Know. The ad warns its product contains nicotine, an addictive chemical. It says if you don't vape, don't start. But critic Stanton Glantz is skeptical. Now they're trying to shift their public image to avoid regulation. Glantz heads a tobacco control research center at the University of California, San Francisco. He thinks the ads have been an attempt to placate politicians and regulators who are up in arms over the explosion in teen use. The FDA recently raided the offices of Juul amid signs of a crackdown. Glantz says Juul wants to avoid that by feigning concern. We're as horrified as everybody else that, that we've taken over the kid market which is just complete baloney, of course, because they're making a small fortune selling their products to kids. Jewel Labs declined requests for an interview. A statement says it supports the governor's call to raise the age to buy tobacco to 21. The company also backs the FDA's efforts to curb underage use. 
But tobacco researcher Stanton Glantz says the key question is whether Juul will stop adding flavors that appeal to kids. The evidence showing that flavors attract and hold kids is just overwhelming. Juul's spokesman Ted Kwong says the company believes flavors play an important role in helping adult smokers quit traditional cigarettes. The FDA commissioner says in the wake of high school use that's grown by nearly 80 percent, preventing underage use is paramount. I'm John Daly, CPR News. Finally today, we're taping our big holiday show later this month in a theater of about a thousand people. And this year, we held a contest for a chance to perform on stage. We heard from lots of Colorado musicians and we'll announce the winner tomorrow. Until then, we're playing some of our other favorite entries. John Garcia wrote an original for us, The Spirits of Christmas. It's about how a Denver dive bar pulls together to save the holidays. We just thought that was so cool, so creative. Garcia tells me it's been a lifelong dream to hear one of his songs on the airwaves. He adds that it's also a great excuse to get his dad to listen to public radio. Well, John, here you go. There was a single porch light shining on Christmas Eve Santa flew above it But a drunk man wanted him to leave So he picked up his gun and took a swig from his flask And took out the sleigh with a shotgun blast And sent Santa crashing down to the mile City. Well, Santa spiraled down and crashed in the trees. He pulled himself together and he walked to the dive across the street. He pushed through the doors and took an empty seat. And the bartender asked, Honey, what'll it be? And he said, I can't stay long, but I'll take some cookies and milk while I'm here. And she said, sorry, hon, but we're all out of milk, all out of cookies, no. Chocolate chip, no snickerdoodlies, no 2%, not a drop of skin. How about a whiskey and a beer? How about a whiskey and a beer? John Garcia with the Spirits of Christmas. It's one of our favorite entries in the Colorado Matters Holiday Extravaganza Contest. Tune in tomorrow when we announce the winner. My reindeer escaped and I don't know where they're at And all the presents are scattered from here to the plat And the sleigh is broken down across the streets now you're telling me that you're all out of milk, all out of cookies, no chocolate chip, no snickerdoodlies, no two percent, not a drop of skin, just this whiskey and some beer. She said, oh, Thanks for spending time with us. You can follow the show at Colorado Matters. I'm at CPR Warner. Our executive editor is Carl Bielek. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News. He said, so what are y'all doing here talking to me? You should all be at home, don't you know it's Christmas Eve? And she looked in his eyes and said, Santa.